Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, and we also have a segment from Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor. Our guest today is Stephen Hall from KPMG. Today, we'll be looking at the latest stress test results from the UK regulator. Also, a look over in Brazil at BTG Pactual and what seems to be a pretty dramatic blow-up. And in the US, Ben McClanahan will be taking a look at the fortunes of the online lenders. First, though, to those UK stress tests. These, Caroline, are the long-awaited stress tests of the seven big lenders in the UK market. And... Everyone's passed, kind of. Kind of. And that's the key caveat. The Bank of England itself is very loath to use the F word or failed. But the fact remains that Standard Chartered and the Royal Bank of Scotland would have failed the test had they not taken particular capital raising activities and other things that they have actually done in the last year. So yes, all things being equal, everybody's passed and it's not quite as bad as people feared, but Standard Chartered and RBS singled out for particular attention within the stress tests, which this year modelled a particularly severe slowdown in the Chinese economy, which is obviously quite apt, and that would have had a knock-on impact on house prices in China and Hong Kong. Now, obviously, it should be noted that that's not a forecast. That is just a stressed scenario. And that will have obviously hit Standard Chartered quite badly. That explains their issue. RBS? Well, RBS, it's slightly unclear as to what exactly and by how much they did not meet their goals because that was on the unspecified individual capital guidance where they fell short. So still some question marks on RBS. Let me bring Stephen Hall in, who's the partner in the risk consulting business at KPMG. Stephen, thanks very much for joining us. I suppose if you put these stress test results together with the last ones, which had very different stresses, particularly around UK lending risks and so on, I suppose you can be reassured. Yes, I think the combination of last year's domestic stresses and this year's emerging market and trading book stresses show that the UK banking system has been resilient to a range of different stresses which provides comfort to the public and to the policymakers and regulators of the resilience of the UK banking system. Is there anything we should be alarmed about though? In terms of the level of conduct costs then this year's stress tests show significant stressed conduct losses arising of the order of 40 billion that the PRA has included which actually exceeds the 37 billion of trading book losses which is interesting given that this was intended as a as a trading book stress as well as the emerging market stress. RBS is the one bank I suppose everyone associates with having a lot of open-ended regulatory issues hanging over them. Is that what you would see as being their big issue? In terms of the conduct losses and the stressed conduct losses, then the PRA hasn't broken down that information by organisation. So it's 
impossible to tell specifically bank to bank. However, it was surprising how RBS, which wasn't being talked about before the results coming out today, has fared relatively less well than was expected in comparison with some of the other organisations. Looking at the big picture of stress tests, it's a post-crisis phenomenon in, in the UK, really. We've only been doing it for the past couple of years in this kind of way, following more like a US model. How important would you say they are going to be going forward? Are they going to be the primary driver of capital levels, really, within the banking system? I think the stress testing regime in the UK that is being operated through this concurrent stress testing exercise is becoming part and parcel of the fabric of the UK regulatory relationship with the major banks. Now, stress testing has always been an important part of what banks have had to do to meet their supervisory obligations. But this annual process is becoming more and more formalised and is adopting a regime which is becoming more similar to the US CCAR approach. And so I think it is becoming more important in that process. The way that the PRA examines the results of this concurrent stress testing clearly drives the capital plans and the dividend plans of the organisations. And we've seen today in the results that because of the capital initiatives that the organisations have done through 2015, that has allowed the PRA to be comfortable with their future capital planning activities. Let me just come back to Caroline now because there are a few other points that we should mention. That It wasn't just this stress test that took place today. There was more. There was indeed. There was quite a lot to talk about. So today... The Bank of England, through its Financial Policy Committee, was also setting out its general approach to bank capital. And the very strong message from Mark Carney, the governor, was that the UK banking system really is very resilient. It's within sight of where the Bank of England thinks the general capital level should be. They also announced that they will likely raise what's known as the counter-cyclical capital buffer in March, and it will be the first time they raise the CCYB. At the moment, obviously, it's at 0%, and they think the CCYB should be around 1%, but they won't make an increase of that whole percentage point all at one go. It will probably be in 0.25 or 0.5 increments. Mr Carney said that that 1% rise would not lead to vastly more capital needed to be raised by banks in the system. What's essentially happening is a reallocation of capital from banks' so-called Pillar 2 buckets into this new counter-cyclical capital buffer bucket, which is a lot more transparent. Let me just bring Martin in for a final word on this topic. What were your big takeaways from your marathon session in the Bank of England? Well, I was very interested in the way that Mark Carney was repeatedly insistent that all of these, the stress tests, the counter-cyclical buffer that they're talking about exercising for the first time ever, none of this is about continuing to increase the level of capital that regulators want banks to hold. He says that the banks are almost there in terms of the amount of capital they hold, and he's confident that they've now reached a stage where they're resilient. We've done with repairing the balance sheets of the banks in the crisis. He said, what we're doing now is just 
making it more transparent, clarifying things, moving capital from one bucket to a different bucket that's more transparent and easier to understand. So a bit of a tidying up process. And I think that's why we saw shares in the banks go up some 2 to 3% this morning, almost more that than the actual results of the stress tests themselves, which in the case of most banks were better than people had feared, with the one exception of perhaps RBS. But even their shares are up 2.5%. Excellent. Well, let's move on to our second topic, which is BTG Pactuel. It's been a pretty dramatic week for Brazil's best-known investment bank, the chief executive and founder of BTG Petuel, Andre Estevez, was arrested in connection with the Petrobras scandal. And the shares in the bank, I think, are now down about a third from that pre-drama level. Martin, it's been a pretty dramatic fall from grace, both for Mr Estevez and the BTG share price. It certainly has. As you said, one of Brazil's most famous bankers who's built up the country's biggest investment bank almost from scratch and is very much its figurehead and its public face, was arrested last week and put in one of Brazil's toughest jails, which apparently only has a cold shower in there, poor guy. And it was initially expected that he would be released pretty quickly and he was being taken just in for questioning. But subsequently, it was announced that he was being held indefinitely in this jail as the investigation into corruption around the country's big state-owned oil group Petrobras continues. And so he over the weekend, he quit as chief executive and was replaced by two of his lieutenants. And this is a big blow. As you say, the shares have been hit. And it is worrying, worrying times for BTG, which had been on a real tear. It had been doing lots of acquisitions. It had been seen as ideally placed in a way to soak up some of this business in areas where Western investment banks were being forced by regulators to get out of the markets, such as proprietary trading commodities. And they'd also done a big deal recently buying a Swiss private bank from uh, Italy's Generali. So they were on a, or have been on an expansion trail. And, and this really does raise questions about all of that, about the direction of the bank and where do they go from here without their key figurehead. And as you say, they had been prospering despite the economic troubles in their domestic Brazilian market, partly through having diversified abroad. Where does this leave them? Because obviously, at the moment at least, BTG Pactual, the bank, is not caught up in any allegations at all. These are allegations that have been directed at the now former chief executive. Why should shareholders be so worried? Well, as I said, I mean, the importance of Mr. Estevez, who is now out of the picture, it seems, but also the allegations appear not to stop just with him. Now, the bankers denied this, but there was on Sunday a media report in Brazil that prosecutors had found indications that BTG itself paid 45 million real to the head of the lower house of Congress to pass a measure favouring one of its businesses. So the suggestions are that this may be a wider scandal that the bank, as well as its founder and figurehead, were involved in, in which case... Who knows where this could stop? Because as well as the arrest of Mr. Estevez, last week also saw, for the first time, the arrest of a sitting congressman who was detained. And they had been thought to have immunity because they were a, a sitting member of parliament. But that's been lifted in order to allow them to be arrested. So the political and business class of Brazil are being ensnared in this in a big way. And it looks like BTG could be sucked into this quite seriously. We'll watch it closely. Let's move on to our final topic for the day, which is a report from Wall Street by our US banking editor. 
I'm Ben McClanahan in New York, and I'm joined by the new Alphaville reporter, Karim Schuber, who since working with me on the US banking team has absolutely dominated the online marketplace lending sector, which, uh, as any reader of the FT will know, has a lot of excitement around it. But you wouldn't know it from looking at the share price of firms like Lending Club and OnDeck. Both of them are trading well below their initial public offering prices uh, within the last 12 months. So, Kadim, what's going on? There's all this excitement about these online lenders, but um, investors don't seem to share it. Yeah, and if you remember when these companies IPO'd last year, you know, it was uh, you know, the new breed of uh, finance companies coming to shake up the world. And, uh, and in the past year, I guess you could point to you know, three things that have made people pessimistic about these companies and perhaps about the sector generally. The competition is just fierce. That would probably be the first one. The regulatory environment and the legal environment is uh, is uncertain, and we've had a couple of legal cases that's shaken mm-hmm. that up a little bit, so we can talk about that. And then thirdly, I guess there's just a broader question of uh, how these companies perform in the medium term, and there's still questions about you know what happens to a company like Lending Club to its model of uh, marketplace lending when the economic environment isn't as benign as right. it is now. So I think, yeah, those, those three things are playing out and investors are perhaps asking, is this such a exciting bet um, as it seemed perhaps last December? So let's talk about the competition. Um, I, I've been looking at the quarterly figures as they come in from some of these guys and, and the marketing costs are, are rising pretty sharply. Is income rising as sharply? It's interesting. You have two things to weigh up here, right? If you're a lending club, there are just a, a raft of companies in here, private companies, raising billions and pounds in equity fundraising, going out and saying we're going to double our originations every year. We're really pushing to acquire customers. And they're pretty much the same customers that Lending Club is going for as well. At the same time, you could say, well, Lending Club is still doubling its revenues. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in the previous quarter, it broke even for the first time. And, and I think it, it's, it is just about edging down its marketing costs, even though it still relies a lot on um, direct mail lending, for example. So I think that's the two sides of the argument there. On the one side, this space is very crowded. You have startups jumping in, throwing cash at acquiring new company, uh, customers. On the other hand, someone like Lending Club will say, well, we're d- trying to diversify into new products, get that cross-sell, which allows us to acquire customers more cheaply, and we're still managing to hit 100% growth. On deck, on the other hand, is perhaps a different story. Since its IPO, its business model has been changing. It before was a, a balance sheet lender, so pretty much a, just a what you could say, like a traditional non-bank lender. It's been starting a marketplace it's been selling some of the loans it was holding on its balance sheet into that marketplace, which uh, gives it a sort of near-term revenue boost, but uh, um, gives up some of that long-term interest income. And its growth, you know, is uh, we're talking about like 50% revenue growth. In fact, it slowed from the second quarter into the third quarter. Mm-hmm. So for a growth company, which IPO'd you know, less than a year ago, A, it's changing its business model. Um, and B, you know, is it growing as fast as a, a tech company, as, as you might want a tech company to grow? So... And how much is the, the shifting regulatory environment um, having an effect on on this rate of growth? Because I, I know the U.S. Treasury in, in July was looking at um, establishing some kind of new framework for, for these guys who, at the moment, report to various agencies in various guises. But there is no sort of overwhelming uh, agency looking after them. How, how is that changing? Well, these businesses are regulated in you know, different ways. So they they abide by certain state regulations and. And, uh, and and general lending regulations. I guess the key thing, if you look at a company like Lending Club, is it has a unique model that is yet to be tested in a, from a regulatory point of view. Mm-hmm. So, you know, can you run a website that's you know uses a corresponding bank? 
to originate loans, which then, then passes straight through onto investors. I mean, does that model stand up to regulatory scrutiny? Um, there's a case this year called Madden versus Bidland, right? Where a uh, someone had taken out a credit card. That debt had eventually got passed on to a uh, a debt collection agency, which was a which was not a bank. And uh, the Second Circuit Court held that actually they did not have the same rights as a bank, which was to lend at above a local state usury rate. Uh, the state in this uh, case is New York, and the Second Circuit is New York, Connecticut, and Vermont. So that was a localized uh, ruling, but it really calls into question the ability of, say, a company like Lending Club to collect on owed debts if it isn't a bank. So an appeal has gone to the Supreme Court. We're going to find out, I guess, in early next year, maybe in January, whether it'll hear that case. If it does, we could end up with a, a ruling one way or the other. If it doesn't, we're sort of left in this sort of limbo where people aren't quite sure whether rulings in other parts of the U.S. will chip away at this model that Lending Club uh, right. relies on. And how about the macro framework? Uh, all these guys have grown up in an environment of uh, ultra-low interest rates and lots of yield-hungry investors piling into their marketplaces, buying literally w- whatever they can originate. As rates begin to rise, uh, perhaps later this month, how will that affect uh, their growth prospects, do you think? The argument you'll hear is, and you hear this across many asset classes, right? So the, maybe the first rate rise isn't going to shake the world apart. <laughs> Don't hold me to that. <laughs> but the longer term question is, are investors going to be as eager to buy up these loans in a world where perhaps yield isn't as hard to find? And then also, to flip it around the other way, what happens when credit isn't performing as well as it is now? What happens when defaults start to tick up? And interesting challenge for these companies is that at the moment, the amount that they're originating, while it's growing fast, is really tiny in the grand scheme of things. We're talking trillions of dollars of outstanding debt, and something like Lending Club, I think, has done around $13.5 billion in total ever. Right. So it's a tiny amount. So as these companies get bigger, and they really start to grapple with, for example, the capital markets, and also the capital markets in a less benign environment, that's when we'll start to see these business models tested, And then when credit starts to turn, who knows how far away that will be, we'll start to see whether their claims that underwriting, that their underwriting is better than anyone else has done before. We'll see those claims tested to maybe to breaking point. Thank you very much, Kadim. It sounds as if the combination of those fears is legitimate reason why these shares have been underperforming so massively. Of course, there's no valuation multiple attached to them, that they have no profits to speak of yet. But it seems the, uh, the trajectory of the share price decline is significant. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Caroline here in the studio. Also to thank Stephen Hall, our guest from KPMG, and also to thank Ben and Kadeem in the New York office. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Until next week, goodbye.